You're listening to the weekly message at Mosaic Church. For more information or to talk about your own life in Christ, email info at mosaicchurchevans.org. If you'd like to support our ministry, visit our website at mosaicchurchevans.org. Thanks for listening. And now, this week's message. So y'all, um, we love the Word of God around here. We love every bit of it, from Genesis to Revelation. We even like the table of contents. We just, we just like the Word of God. And so um, we're going to dive into it, but let's pray first. Lord, we just acknowledge that what you say to us is infinitely more important than anything that I have to say. And so, Lord, I just ask you to give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to receive, and that, God, you would let your word come to life in this room. Let it penetrate us, God. We love you and we thank you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. So, friends, um, I want to ask a serious question. 30 years from now, what would you like the world to look like? I hope that is a question of hope. Because far too often, I think we tend to operate with this, things are bad and getting worse. But, but I want you to begin to think, okay, if God could use me, if God could use us to build his kingdom on earth, what would that look like? How would this world be better in 30 years from now? How would the CSRA be better 30 years from now? Julia and I were talking the other day, and uh, she was talking about teaching, and she made an interesting statement to me, and I'm paraphrasing her, and Julia, if I say it wrong, feel free to correct me. Um, She said, I could never separate teaching from its connection to community. I could never separate teaching from its connection to community. What's the point? Julia doesn't see teaching as just the dissemination of knowledge. She sees it as a tangible way of building a better world. And by the way, let me point something out while I'm on Julia for a minute. You'll notice we have Joseph and we have Mary, but we are missing someone in this equation. I want you to know that's on purpose because Julia and her team, they they did this wonderful job of decorating But Julia was telling me as she was thinking about decorating, she thought, you know, I want us to focus on the journey of Joseph and Mary. I want want us to think about the call into that journey. And so I I challenge you as we step into Advent, really step into that place of thinking about the journey of faith and what God is calling us into. Okay, so guys, when I was growing up, the gospel I heard was... If you believe in Jesus, when you die, you'll go to heaven. Has anybody else heard that gospel? And it was working really well for me until I started reading the Bible. That was the problem with that gospel. It just wasn't quite what I was hearing. Do, if we believe in Jesus and surrender our lives to him, will we go to heaven one day when we die? Yes, but that's not the essence of the gospel. The essence of the gospel is God is making for himself a people. And in his relationship with that people, he is going to build a better world. That's kind of the essence of the gospel. As many of you know, I recently went to South Korea, which to allay my mother's fears, I told her it was just beyond Thompson. So if you just (laughs) kept on going, 
you'd find South Korea. Bring that picture up for me, Ryan. So this is one of their 6 a.m. prayer gatherings. Now, <laughs> yeah, that is an hour it actually exists. And, uh, but here's the thing. This is one of the churches that has a 6 a.m. prayer gathering. There are actually several churches across the city of Seoul, Korea. And what you need to know is they don't do it once a month. They don't do it once a week. They do it seven days a week. So notice all the children up on the stage. Notice that there are men. Men are in the church, praise God. And here's the thing. It's actually the largest sanctuary in South Korea. It's got three levels. You can't really see it all that well. But guys, that's Saturday morning. That's Saturday morning. Come on, somebody. Okay. Friends, um, later that day, we went to this place. You can bring up that next pic. Here I'm on the top of about a four-story building, and I'm looking over the border into North Korea. And you can tell that there's not much going on there. Through binoculars, you could see barbed wire fence and guard posts that were essentially keeping the North Koreans imprisoned to their own nation. From the same vantage point, I looked in the opposite direction, and this is South Korea. And you can see it's a thriving metropolis. There's all these massive buildings of apartments and, and offices in, in the background, tons of cars. And I'm grieving over the fact that North Koreans are merely a boat ride away from prosperity and freedom. And as I'm thinking about this, it finally begins to dawn on me. Here is little South Korea, just south of North Korea, just east of China, just a little further south from Russia. Three nations that could do incredible harm in our world. Friends, if we have any sense of peace in this world, we actually owe a great debt to what God is doing in that country raising up such a vibrant and faithful people of prayer who are travailing on, not just on their behalf, but on our behalf for a sense of world peace. Friends, that was a master class in what it means to partner with God to make a better world. So let's jump into the text a little bit. Have you ever wondered, like, why would they want to kill a baby, Jesus? Particularly if Jesus' main goal was just to make a way for us to go to heaven when we die, why would they want to kill that baby? It may be the fact that they weren't thinking about Jesus being this, his main role being making a way to go to heaven when you die. No, what, what was their vision of Jesus? It was his kingship. They were threatened by the fact that his kingship was threatening the kingdoms of this world. Right, That's what inspired this murderous thought in Herod. So I want you to look at verses 20 through 21 of chapter 1. It says, But when he had thought this over, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you shall name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. 
I want you to underline Joseph, son of David. Why? Because Jesus is in the line of David. Why is that important? Because like David took on Goliath, he was their champion. And when David defeated Goliath, guess what? The whole battle got accredited to the Israelites. So when Jesus fights our battle as our champion, his victory is our victory. It's accredited to us. Do you see that? But here's the thing I want you to think about. Notice that in this vantage, or excuse me, in this story, Jesus isn't taking on the Philistines. He's not taking on the Romans. He's going to free his people from their sins. Have you ever known some people who wanted to be saved in their sin, but not saved from their sins? Don't look at them. My dad had a patient once that he came in for an appointment and he said, you know, Dr. Goss, what I really love about Jesus is I can do whatever I want to do during the day as long as I confess it at night, he'll forgive me. That's wanting to be saved in your sin, not saved from your sin. It reminds me of St. Augustine. St. Augustine, before he was any type of saint, uh, was pretty much a heathen. He was always engaged in sexual promiscuity. Uh, and during those years, he allegedly prayed, Oh, Master, make me chaste and celibate. But not yet. <laughs> Do you hear it? Friends, wanting to be saved in our sins means wanting to be saved on our terms, not God's terms. It means wanting to go to heaven someday while I defiantly hold on to the hell inside myself today. Come on, somebody. Let's talk about the word sin. The Bible Project has a great video on sin, which we should all watch videos on the definition of sin. Anyway, I highly recommend it. But one of the things they point out is this word in the book of Matthew is harmatia which means missing the mark. So it's like you've got a bow and arrow and you miss the target. But the question is, what is the target? What were we as human beings created to be? We were created to be image bearers of God who through a relationship with God, we benevolently rule the world so that what is true in heaven becomes true in the earth. That's what the kingdom of God is. So friends, do you hear it? When Jesus saves us from our sin, what is he doing? He's trying to get us back to plan A. He's saying, I want to get you back to being the image bearers of God where you're making a better world. Friends, Jesus doesn't save us in our sins. He saves us from our specific sins because that is how we partner with him in making a better world. So let's look at this partnership between Joseph and God. As Don read, Mary is the betrothed of Joseph. And that's, that's important to kind of conceptualize that because it means that they are more than engaged. They are legally married, but they have not consummated the marriage yet. So Joseph knows that the baby in Mary's womb is not his, but he also knows that to end the relationship with Mary, he actually has to pursue legal divorce with her. In verse 19, I want you to look at that. In the NASB, it says, And her husband, Joseph, 
since he was a righteous man, did not want to disgrace her, but planned to send her away secretly. What's interesting is is Matthew wants you to recognize that Joseph is a righteous man. Now think about this. He wants you to recognize that, that Joseph is a righteous man, but what is the prescribed punishment for adultery in the law of Moses? It's capital punishment. It's stoning. So what's interesting is Matthew wants you to get the fact that Joseph is a righteous man, but yet he also wants you to understand that Joseph is not wanting to fully obey the law or at least fully execute the judgment of the law. Do you hear that? So what's going on here? What I wonder, and I invite you to wonder it, to wonder it, to think about it with me, is what kind of pressure did Joseph feel? Just just imagine that for a minute. Certainly there were those around him who had pretty strong judgments about what he should do. He certainly felt the expectations of his culture on him. Have you ever felt called to take a middle road, kind of a third way that doesn't please anybody? (laughs) It's just you're just trying to honor God. Jewish rabbis, my dad was reminding me of this this week. Jewish rabbis have this thing called thinking on both hands. On the one hand, this is true, but on the other hand, this is also true. And it's a way of holding things that seem to be diametrically opposed, holding those things in tension. And let me say this, in a world that desperately wants clear-cut answers, we want black and white, we want good guys and bad guys, your willingness to sit in between and hold the tension of both grace and truth, that generally doesn't make you very popular. But Joseph is willing to do that. He's willing to walk the tightrope of grace and truth. Friends, what I want you to recognize is not only is he not law-abiding enough to please the legalist, he's not, Mary, you just do you. Doesn't matter. You know, just make your own decisions. He's, He's not pleasing the lawless either. Furthermore, check this out. He's not using the law to weaponize it against Mary. Right? He could use it to basically exact vengeance for himself, and he refuses to do that. Sometimes I wonder if we think about how Joseph's decision might have set the course of Christianity as we know it today. Friends, think about it like this. What if Jesus and Joseph, 14, 15 years after the fact, they're working on a carpentry project together, and Jesus is wrestling with his own understanding of the law. And he looks at his dad and he says, Dad, the law requires you to stone those who are caught in adultery. When you thought that mom had had an affair on you, what kept you from wanting to have her stoned. And perhaps Joseph thought about it for a minute, and then he said, son, we're Jews, which means we think on both hands. 
On the one hand, the law does say that adulterers deserve to die. But on the other hand, the law says you have to have witnesses, and we didn't have any. On the one hand, um, I knew I needed to divorce your mom. But on the other hand, the prophet Micah says, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with the Lord your God. So after praying about it, I decided to act justly and to operate in as much mercy as possible and to entrust judgment to Yahweh. Perhaps years later, when Jesus was doing his own arduous work of sermon writing, which if you've ever written a sermon, you know it's painful, the thing... The thing is, perhaps as Jesus is writing that sermon, he begins to think about that conversation with his dad. And he begins to craft words like, you, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your father in heaven. Friends, let me say this. Our world could use some Christians who learn to think on both hands. Our world could use some Christians who learn to hold truth and grace in the same body and have enough courage to not necessarily be popular with either extreme, but just try to honor Jesus and try to honor the person as much as possible. Friends, Joseph's willingness to sit in that tension to hold both truths and out of a desire to honor God, it gave him the heart where he would respond to the dreams that God gave him. It positioned him to hear from God in that way. It also crafted in him the heart that would get up in the middle of the night, take his wife and his child, and leave the country just because God said to do so. Friends, let me say this. If you'll pursue that kind of heart, you'll receive signs and wonders. Let me say that again. If you'll pursue that kind of heart by the grace of God, you'll begin to see signs and wonders of God working in your life because you'll be positioned to receive it. If we are willing to let him save us from our specific sins... He will put his dreams in our hearts and begin to use us in his plans. Let me say this. Anytime you see a prophecy in the New Testament, it's really wise to go back and read it in context in the Old Testament because it will begin to show you what the author is actually trying to say. So notice that Matthew, he quotes Isaiah 7, 14. He says, Behold, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and she will name him Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. So let's talk about the, the point of that context, or, or what was that scripture in context? So, it's in the Old Testament. The people of Judah are surrounded by enemy armies, and King Ahaz is afraid. And Isaiah comes to King Ahaz, and he says, don't be afraid of them. For the woman that you've just married, who you haven't consummated the marriage with, by the time she has a child... And before that child is old enough to know right from wrong, I'll handle your enemies. 
What is, what is he really saying? He's saying, I'm Emmanuel. I am God with you. I will take care of your enemies. You feel surrounded, but don't worry. It may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. You see that? Amen. That's a good song. Friends, let me say this. In a world that was surrounded and inundated by the brokenness of sin, God shows up and he says, no, I'm Emmanuel. I'll not only deliver you from the Romans and their sinfulness, I'll deliver you from the sinfulness in your own heart. And let me say this, brothers and sisters. In a world where we feel so tugged towards it's bad and getting worse, the moral floor has fallen out from among us, He's Emmanuel. He's God with us. It's time to have some hope, brothers and sisters. It's time to believe that 30 years from now, the world could actually look better than it does today. Why? Because Jesus is still king, and we've been commissioned to be his people, to be the assembly of God where his presence begins to reside with us and move out into our city. That is the good news of the gospel. Let's have some hope. Unfortunately, the opposite is also true. If we're unwilling to let him save us from our specific sins, we will twist God's plans in ways that harm the world. I'd like to have your permission to mess around in your kitchen for just a minute. I mean, it's, it's Thanksgiving week, and even a bachelor finds the kitchen during Thanksgiving week, so... It's a big week. Guys, one of the dominant false gospels in the world today, in our culture today, this is a very dominant false gospel, is that people are going to be saved because they are basically good. That is, that's not what the gospel says. The gospel says you're not good. I'm not good. The gospel says we are basically sinful but deeply loved. So I want to explore that thought for a minute. Follow me on this. Power is an interesting thing because um, power begins to reveal kind of what's actually there. The, the American novelist William Gladys says, power doesn't corrupt people, people corrupt power. So what he's really saying is that power is not necessarily a bad thing, but power will magnify the bad that is still in us. Do you see that? So how many people set out to, to, to kind of create systemic change and wanted to see a better world so that they, they set out in politics and over time, as they grew in power, the pressure to maintain the power pressed in on their insecurities. It pressed in on their deep need for human affirmation. It pressed in on their need for the appearance of success. And over time, they found themselves making self-serving, self-protective decisions that they never would have dreamed of when that kind of power was only a dream. Do you see? It's not the power. It's the pressure that comes with the power. See, friends, the truth is, that pressure begins to expose fault lines in our souls. So when you look at corrupt politicians, come on somebody, or monarchs such as King Herod, 
Let me say this. Please be careful and never say, I would never do that. Don't do it. When you start reasoning from the, I would never do that, I'm basically a good person, understand that you're seeing yourself through the lens of the power and the pressure that you currently possess and feel. The true gospel says that like Herod, we all have fault lines, deep places of brokenness in our soul. That if we were given a right amount of power and the pressure that comes with it, we could find ourselves doing things that we never thought possible. And let me say this to my students. Guys, this is why it's so important right now to take the sanctification of your soul so seriously right now. Because right now you're, you're kind of in a privileged position. You don't have enough power to do a lot of harm with a broken soul. But it's coming. You're going to get married. You're going to uh, rise up in, in the business ranks. You're going to be teachers or you're going to have kids. You're going to have people that you have power over. And if your soul is healthy before God, you'll use that power in ways that build the world and bless the world. If your soul's not healthy, you'll spend a lot of time trying to redeem really bad decision making. So I, I encourage you to take it seriously right now. So since most of us will not be monarchs, I want to bring this concept down to a more um, an example that kind of fits our reality. So um, you fall in love with the most perfect person in the world. She is awesome. Your parents used to fight like cats and dogs and say all kinds of nasty things to one another, but you are just sure because you were dating Miss Wright that your marriage would never look like that. <laughs> Seven years and two kids later, your wife does something that at one point kind of irritated you, but now you become irate. Now, the truth is that she did the same thing while you were dating, and you get a little bit frustrated, but you never got explosive. But now you catch yourself saying stuff that sounds exactly like your dad, and in moments of sober thinking, it's horrifying to you. Although you always thought of yourself as a nice person, it's hard to rationalize that kind of language coming out of a nice person. What just happened? The fault lines that had always been in your soul, your self-centeredness, your willingness to hold on to resentments, your need to always be right, those things that had always been there while you were dating, they finally come to the surface. Why? Because, he, follow me on this, with marriage comes power, right? Meaning that you don't have to perform like you were performing when you were dating, Right? She can't just break up with you. So the sense of empowerment that comes with the marriage in conjunction with the pressure of having kids and trying to provide for your family, those things come together and suddenly it, it begins to expose things in your soul that had always been there, but you never knew. Anyone who's done 12 steps knows that alcohol didn't cause the problems. Alcohol manifested the problems. It exposed the problems. So let's look at how this plays out in Herod's life. God's intention 
for earthly rulers is that they would use power to serve those they rule. So that's, that's the point, is they're going to use power to serve people they rule. But instead, the text says that Herod becomes greatly disturbed. Another translation says that he was frightened. Perhaps his fear is amped up when he hears Micah's prophecy about Jesus being born in Bethlehem. Because as, as he goes back to the text, he begins to notice that this ruler who's going to come out of Bethlehem is one whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Maybe he's more than a human. Furthermore, these astrologers just showed up to his front porch and are telling him that all the stars are lining up to proclaim the birth of this one. So he becomes afraid. Here's what I want you to recognize. Joseph, for years, had let the law of God and the grace of God work on his heart. And then when he was confronted with pressure, he handled it well, right? He did the righteous thing. When Herod handles, or excuse me, when Herod receives the pressure, he begins to operate in fear. Whereas Joseph wanted to, to, to kind of hold the line, uh, think on both hands, try to figure out a way to honor God and take care of his wife, Joseph, excuse me, Herod begins to make decisions by rationalizing through fear. Here's what happens, guys. When you begin to reason from fear, and this is why the Bible commands us not to be afraid. Actually, commands us not to be afraid, I think, 365 times. It's because when we begin to reason from fear, we begin to be tempted to have man-centered schemes rather than God-centered faith. Do you see that? When we, when we begin to reason from fear... Uh, Mark, you might want to pull me back a little bit. I feel a little hot up here. Uh, when we begin to reason from fear... What happens is we begin to operate or tempted to operate in man-centered schemes rather than God-centered faith. So, friends, Herod, hear me on this. Herod is what happens when we're unwilling to let Jesus save us from our specific sins and then we grow in power. You don't want advancement until God's dealt with your heart. Because Herod is what happens when you're not willing to let God deal with your heart, but you grow in power. You wind up taking the corruption inside of you and pushing it on a world and further corrupting an already broken world. Friends, so, so hear me on this. When I'm unwilling to let God deal with my self-centeredness, my resentments, my unresolved anger, my penchant to operate in fear, I operate in ways that consequently harm the world rather than help save the world that Jesus died to save. So friends, the very word Jesus means Yahweh saves. There was a um, book, I think in the 60s, by a psychiatrist. And the title of the book's always really stuck with me. It was, Whatever Happened to Sin? And the psychiatrist was, was essentially talking about the psychiatric problems of taking the concept of sin out of your culture. I think one of the 
things that happened to sin as we reduced it down to just some bad habits that need reformation. Sin is not bad habits that need reformation. The Bible describes it as a power. A power that enslaves us. A power that if you try to change it on your own strength, you'll discover it's a lot stronger than you think it is. Friends, sin is powerful. It has spiritual power, but the good news is the blood of Christ has more power. You'll notice in chapter 2, verse 15, Matthew makes another strange prophetic reference. He says, out of Egypt I have called my son. What is he doing? He's pointing back to the Exodus. The Exodus that was 1,400 years before Jesus. What is he saying? He's saying Jesus is the new Moses. Just like Moses led the people of Israel out of Egypt, so Jesus is going to lead them out of bondage to sin. He's also saying that Jesus is the new Israel, and when we come into Christ, guess what? We become children of the Most High God. But also he's saying that Jesus is the new Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Why? Because at the Exodus, they were instructed to take a lamb, to sacrifice the lamb, to put the blood on the sides and the tops of the door frames, so that when the angel that was going to bring judgment would see it and he would pass over the house and only execute judgment on the enemies of God. Friends, let me say this. There is power in the blood. It almost sounds crazy to say as a 21st century person, but it's not just a legal fiction. There is a mystical power in the blood of Christ. You know why? Because Jesus is not just a, a dead person. He was raised from the dead. He ascended to the throne of glory. Now all power and authority belongs to him. And so you better believe he will back up his blood. Now, friends, Jesus overthrows the power-hungry systems of this world, not by using man's power of violence, but by the power of the blood, his blood. Friends, let me say this. When his blood begins to operate in our lives, it cleanses souls. It breaks strongholds. It creates freedom. You begin to discover, yeah, there really is a power greater than me that will set me free. Friends, we can have some real hope when we begin to think about the next 30 years. Go back to this picture. What if we allowed God to make us his assembly, his people? What if we allowed the blood of God, the, the blood of Christ, to do its work? To not just save us in our sin, but to set us free from our sin. So that we become the resting place of God. So that we begin to pray with God, partner with God in seeing God make a better world. So that we begin to look at the next 30 years and go, ah, oh, it's bad and getting worse. No, no, no. We, we begin to put that aside and begin to look forward with joy and peace and hope, recognizing that the same God that's bringing peace in South Korea will bring peace here. Will use us. So I ask you, where are you today? Some of us here or online, today needs to be the first day that we truly repent and let Jesus be Lord. Not just of the universe, but of our own hearts. Others of us, we've been experiencing a fairly powerless Christianity 
And it's because we want Jesus to save us in our sin, not from our sin. And he wants to open you up to a whole different life. Are you willing to let him set you free from your specific sins? Today can be the start of that, not the finish of that, but the start of that. For some of you, it's time to ask yourself, how willing am I to stretch to make room for signs and wonders in my life? How far am I willing to stretch to to, to make room for God to do kingdom advancing things through my life? Am I willing to sacrifice sleep for the sake of prayer? Am I willing to sacrifice time on TV to become a student of God's word? Am I willing to have a, a potentially awkward conversation with someone that I've been seeing over and over again and I have no idea where they stand with Christ? Am I willing to just say, hey, I'd, I'd like to hear about your spiritual life and just get to know them and discover where they are and how you might can help them on their journey with Christ? Are you willing to stretch beyond where you are, to see the kingdom advance. And lastly, I think there are some of us here who you've been stretching for a long time. You've been helping people become whole through Jesus for a long time. And you are to be commended. But you may also be carrying a a fairly heavy heart. Life is hard. We've had lies spoken over us. We deal with some shame from years past. The blood of Christ is stronger, my friends. He can set us free. He can heal us. And so I encourage you, if that's where you are, if you're like, Chris, I want to be all in for the kingdom, and I am all in for the kingdom, but I wish I wasn't carrying this 20-pound weight around all the time, come find me. I'd love to pray with you. Um, Stand with us, and let's just pray over each other. Lord Jesus, Lord, your word is so good. Jesus, you are Yahweh saves. And you are the one who just goes way beyond saving us in our sin. You save us from our sin. And you by the power of your spirit you help us to partner with the Father in advancing the kingdom and so Lord we ask you to do that work deeply in us would you sanctify us to the uttermost would you help us to partner with you in the rebuilding of this world would you free us from fear and fill us with faith that we would be your people all the way through. Lord, we love you, and we bless you, and we thank you. In your mighty name we pray, Lord. Amen. Thanks for taking the time to listen to our message. If you live in the area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you. Visit us or check out our website at mosaicchurchevans.org for more information. May God bless your day.